It's good to see all of you. My name is Victor. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, If you would, turn to your Bibles in uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. Mark, chapter 10. Um, Yeah, it's good to see you guys this morning. Um, This year, if you haven't been around for a while, we've taken one Sunday out of every month um, to consider a spiritual practice or discipline. And we do this because being a Christian, following Jesus, it takes practice, doesn't it? Um, if you and I enter into a day unawares, um, without any sort of intention whatsoever, we'll be shaped inevitably by the unending news cycle, our social media, um, or our workplace. We'll be formed in what it loves. We're always being called into worship, and it's naive to think that becoming more like Jesus will just simply happen to us without any effort on our part. And so this month, we'll, we'll focus on this practice of service, Christian service. And to do that, we'll, we'll look at a familiar scene from the Gospel of Mark. So this is Mark 10, verse 35. Mark 10, verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, Oh, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it's been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, um, would you... Show us where true greatness lies. Uh, We have your book open, your word before us. We want to be shaped by you. We want to encounter you. We want to meet you in this next hour. Uh, We want to be loved by you and change. We don't want to stay the same. And so change us by your spirit. Unite us um, by your spirit. We love you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Mark chapter 10, Jesus, uh, this man 
who's claiming to be the savior of Israel, is telling his closest followers for the third time that he's about to enter the city of Jerusalem and he'll be mistreated, condemned, and killed by the Roman authorities. The messianic hope of the Jewish people, including his disciples, was that a kingly figure would come in power and overthrow Rome who had oppressed their people for years. So how can a dying man on a cross play into this expectation of a Messiah? Something is not right. Something is not lining up here. And I think the disciples, they see their moment. And because what's peculiar is that right after Jesus shares this grim news, James and John, some of his closest friends, come up with an outlandish request, which eventually throws the whole band of disciples into an argument about who the greatest is. Who the greatest is. And in considering this practice of service, we too have to take up this question. Who is the greatest? Because it strikes at the heart of whether you and I simply do acts of service versus becoming people who serve, servants. And so we have to take up this question. Um, to become one who serves our idea of greatness, it needs to be flipped on its head. And so the question you and I will ask today is this. How does Jesus flip our idea of greatness? And the first answer to that question is, is Jesus flips it with his kindness. Jesus flips our idea of greatness with his kindness. So look at verse 35. Two of Jesus' disciples, they come up and they demand, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. What? Like, do do you know who you're talking to here? And what do they want? They want to consume Jesus. They want to use him and his power for their benefit. Their idea of greatness, it needs to be flipped. But we all have this idea of greatness inside of us, don't we? This is a quote from an author, Tish Harrison Warren. She says, we wait for God to convince us that he is a useful accessory in our own project of self-creation. In this way, so very subtly, we approach God not in honest lament, but as unhappy customers. Oof. God isn't giving us what we want. He isn't taking away the pain of this world. And frankly, he's so terribly slow. We are not pleased with the job God is doing. And the customer is always right. Have you seen this tendency in yourself, this desire to use God or to use his church, consume him as an accessory so that you are more fulfilled more comfortable? Well, his closest followers did too. But rather than openly rebuke them, how does Jesus respond? Look at verse 36. He says, what do you want me to do for you? (laughs) Man, can you see Jesus's kindness just in that very 
question. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus encounters our demands, our consumerism. And how does he respond? With curiosity and kindness. Jesus, he's also kind towards our ignorance. So look at verse 37. What do the disciples want? To sit at Jesus' right and left in his glory. It's the positions of highest honor in the messianic kingdom. But Jesus responds in verse 38, you don't, you just don't understand what you're asking for. They think Jesus and his band of 12 are going to take Jerusalem by force. Jesus will occupy the throne and release the Jews from the oppression of Rome. They're ignorant about what Jesus is up to. They don't understand, as one commentator puts it, that the way to privileged position in the messianic kingdom is not by grabbing for power, but by relinquishing it through suffering and death. They're ignorant. And we see their ignorance in the way they answer Jesus' question in verse 38. He asks, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink or to be baptized with the baptism with I'm to be baptized? And they answer with zeal, we are able. They don't get that the baptism they'll undergo isn't the trouble it takes to capture a city. No, it's, it's the humiliation and the sufferings of Christ that they will share in as they proclaim the gospel in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And in verse 39, Jesus affirms that they will drink that cup. They will be baptized with that baptism. James, as some of you might know, he's the first to be martyred for the name of Jesus. John will be exiled on the island of Patmos. Jesus goes on to tell them then that it isn't even his call as to who gets the good seats. It's not his call. It's the Father's. So we see that Jesus, he's kind. He's kind with these ignorant followers. He knows that they'll slowly but surely come to know the truth from the heart and that they will follow him through suffering and a, and a tribulation on, on account of him. Jesus flips our idea of greatness through his kindness. And I experienced his kindness recently. I'll tell you a little story. Um, so my kids, earlier this summer, they, they just had a stomach bug that would not go away. And at least one of them, for, for two weeks, was waking up in the middle of the night and throwing up. And, you know, you'd be sleeping and, and shocked awake by their screams. You'd rush into their room and their little bodies are convulsing. And, like, you just can't do anything about it. And for the next 30 minutes to an hour, you're, you're taking care of them, comforting them, trying to get them to go back to sleep, and cleaning up the mess And after a few nights of this, I just found myself, to be honest with you, raging at God. Like, don't you care about my kids? Like, don't you care about me? (laughs) But as the nights drew on and it felt like there was no end to it, no relief inside my anger, it just turned to resignation and then to exhaustion. I had worn myself out 
beating on his chest, trying to get an answer from him. Have you been in a place like that? And I prayed to him in that very vulnerable place, like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I I felt like he answered with a question of his own. And it was this, "What, what do you expect from me? What do you want me to do for you? Do you want me to give you a comfortable life? Do you want me to, to, to take away all your troubles? Or do you want me? Do you want me? Do you want to know? Do you want my comfort in knowing that I am with you? I am with you. And I'm even weaving your children's suffering and your suffering into this greater story that you can't see but that is truer, greater, more weighty than you can imagine. In his kindness, God revealed my consumerism and my ignorance about him and his ways. That's not the only time he's had to do that, and it won't be the last. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, and God might be inviting you to this reflectiveness through your unmet demands of him. Will you let Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? Will you let it melt away your consumerism? Because to approach God with the desire to use him for our own greatness, it steals away our ability to become one who serves. That's why we're talking about this right now. How can someone who is constantly grabbing for more more comfort, more power, more affirmation, live open-handedly and give of themselves freely. You can't. You can't. So Jesus flips our idea of greatness with kindness, and next he flips our idea of greatness with comparison. So look at verse 41. The inquiry of James and John, it's overheard by the other ten, and they just get mad, probably because they didn't get to Jesus first. And so um, they start causing a fit. And in verse 42, Jesus says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. And whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So Jesus He compares the way authority is used among those who don't know God, the Gentiles, to those who do know him, who follow him. And doing so, he's implying that the two should look vastly different. And this was understood among the writers of the New Testament and the early church. Paul wrote, don't be conformed to this world. John wrote, don't love the world, or the things in the world. And Peter wrote, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. These two groups should be Different. The early church saw themselves as a community not of this world, 
whose way of life was different because it was governed by the upside-down greatness of the kingdom and not by the greatness of Rome and Caesar. So Jesus is saying to, their, uh, to these uh, men, your, your idea of greatness, it looks more like the Gentiles. And five minutes ago, before James and John came up, I just told you what the greatness of the Gentiles is going to do to me. So look at verses 33 to 34. He says, the Gentile rulers, I'll be delivered over to them. And what will they do to me? They will mock me and spit on me and flog me and kill me. Jesus is saying, your idea of greatness needs to be flipped because the desires I see in you are the desires that will end up nailing my hands and feet to a cross. And so I think we love and live among those who don't know him, but we do not let our idea of greatness be compared to theirs. So if the church, it starts to look different, or if it starts to look and feel like the world around it, if it pursues the same things in the same ways as the world around it, we might be doing something wrong. It's why Jesus didn't say, hey, you're the tofu of the world. So taste and look and love just like everyone else around you. That's what tofu does if you haven't eaten it just tastes like everything that it comes into contact with. No, he didn't say that. What did he say? You are the salt of the earth. The church is supposed to be this tasty, flavorful, different community that enhances the world that it comes into contact with. So what's one way the church can look different from the world around it? One way is to pursue the service of small things. Where the world around us is raging, express yourself, follow your heart, pursue the large and fast and famous things. The church in America would do well to pursue the humble service of the hidden and insignificant. So Richard Foster, he writes this, In service, we must experience the many little deaths of going beyond ourselves. Service banishes us to the mundane, the ordinary, the trivial. In the discipline of service, there's also great liberty. Service enables us to say no to the world's games of promotion and authority. It abolishes our need and desire for a pecking order. So let's, how about we get personal? What feels too small and too trivial for you to give your time or treasure to it? For me, in my current stage of life with little kids, it's easy for me to feel like the moments, the small precious moments of free time and quiet are so few and so far between. I can start to hoard my energies. I can start to hide from the opportunities to serve my neighbors. I can get frustrated at the smallest requests for my time and presence. What is it for you? 
Is it that lonely but difficult person who won't repay you for the kindness of inviting them over for a meal? Is it the friend who calls during the Husker games and needs to talk? (laughs) Is it the Grace Chapel work day that threatens to steal your precious Saturday morning and won't get you on the cover of the World Herald? Yeah, what is it for you? Jesus, he flips our idea of greatness with comparison. And lastly, he flips our idea of greatness with his cross. So look at verse 45. Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Man, there's so much packed into this little verse. First, the term Son of Man. It would have popped out to a first century Jew. This name that Jesus calls himself is actually his name of choice. Throughout the Gospels, he calls himself the Son of Man over 80 times. And it refers to this character um, in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 7. We won't read it, but this person, the Son of Man, who is given dominion and glory and a kingdom— And every nation and people and language, they come to serve and worship this son of man. It's a glorious picture. It's a kingly picture. And what Jesus says about this son of man, though, it, it flips their idea of greatness. Because instead of the king coming down to earth to be served, what does he do? He comes down to serve them. This is mind-blowing. It's scandalous. It, It would have rocked their worlds. And it's because you will never find any other religion like this, where the king leaves his throne and comes to his people to serve them. You can Wikipedia it. You will not find another God like this. Um why did he come? Well, it says here to serve us and ultimately to give his life as a ransom, as a ransom, which means redemption or release. So just as Israel was released from slavery in Egypt, Jesus's death releases the many from their slavery to sin and death because he died on our behalf. He died on our behalf. What should have happened to the many happened to him. So Jesus flips our idea of greatness through his kindness, through comparison, and through the cross. So why do we serve? Why do we serve? Let's just ask this question. The goal of service as a Christian isn't in simply lightening the load for someone else. You and I can find an endless amount of religions and ideologies that think that serving is good that value serving others. But it's what our serving one another points to that makes Christian service much more weighty and, and beautiful and good and true. Because whenever you and I practice the humble task of serving, what we're doing is following our king. We're following our king, taking up a little cross and dying. We're doing what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 4, carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life 
of Jesus might be manifested in our bodies. When we serve, no matter what it is, no how small, it doesn't matter how small it is, it's, it serves like it's a little sacrament of sorts. Our little service points to the greater service of our King. It points to Jesus, the Son of Man, the King serving in his death on the cross, which means that no service is too small, ordinary, or trivial. When we serve, we carry in the body, in our bodies, the death of Jesus so that his resurrection life might spring up and draw people to him. And it will do this. It will have that effect because when you and I look at the end of time, we see a crowd that no one can number from every tribe and people and language and tongue, and they are worshiping this son of man before the throne, and they're singing a song. And do you know what that song says? It says this, salvation, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. The king lamb, Jesus, who humbly, silently, innocently was led to the slaughter, who took on our punishment and served us in his death. So in closing, when we consider the spiritual practice of serving, we're doing more than saying, you should get involved. (laughs) You should do stuff in the church. We're doing more than that. Like, yeah, that's, that's important. But that's not what I want you to go home today. I'm asking you to consider the upside-down greatness of this God displayed in, in Christ the Lamb. Because if the church, if you and I take up this humble, self-giving love, if we use the, the power, our power, in this otherworldly way, do you know what will happen? It will be exactly what God uses to do the monumental cosmic work of bringing heaven down to earth and uniting all of humanity to himself. That's what you're doing when you serve as a Christian. So let's take up these little crosses and let's point our world to the lamb who was slain for them. Amen. Let me pray. King Jesus, you, um, may your humble nature, your servant, self-giving love teach us, grow us, form us. Um, would our service to one another and to our neighbors, would it point um, our world to the cross where you served us in your death and overcame death um, and loved us? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.